Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. I can't believe it's episode 130. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me, astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. 130. Gosh, that's, um, that's not far off. Uh, your age, is it? Yeah. Oh, I, I guess I deserve that because I've had a few goes at you. Um, me, yeah. If I'm 130... Yeah, well, it makes me a, a lot older. Right. All right, well, we might just not go there. No, maybe not. Mm. Uh, we've got a few things to talk about today. A binary star collision slash supernova, which seems to be getting a lot of attention in the media at the moment, and we'll talk about why. Uh, And a ghost galaxy has been discovered. Uh, We will explain what a ghost galaxy is and what this one is actually doing. It's nearby. Um, Just look out your window. Well, maybe. Uh, And a couple of questions. One about studying medicine with a view to uh, working in the space program. That's uh, that's a great idea. Uh, Shoot high. Why not? And uh, we've got another question about Oumuamua, the space doogie and its change in trajectory and what that might have been caused by. But we'll uh, get back to that later. On oh, a lovely note, if I don't forget, I'll, I'll read it out. We've just got this beautiful note, Fred, which I think is worth sharing. But first, let's talk about this binary star collision that seems to uh, have a lot of people talking uh, at the moment. It, indeed. Um, the good news is this thing's 8,000 light years away. <laughs> well, that's handy. It is handy. Um, uh, that's uh, that. You know, it means it's uh, quite a, a distant, a long way away uh, in our galaxy. Um, it is in the constellation Norma. Norma is the square. It's a southern hemisphere constellation, so that means, of course, it can be observed from the southern hemisphere. But what it is is a pair of uh, stars which are relatively unusual. They're called Wolf Rayet stars. And these are stars that, you know, they've been known for you know, 100 years probably uh, as being objects that uh, are unusual. They've got an unusual spectrum. They are now identified as being very massive stars, uh, which are kind of at the end of their lives and therefore a, a, a supernova risk. Uh, and the, 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 you know, they probably, in the end, when they go off pop, they collapse and you get um, a neutron star, which is a, a star that's the size of a city but has the mass of the sun in it. Yeah, I can't uh, get my head around that one either. No, <laughs> well, no they're, 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 we know they exist and they're fairly common, actually. Or it could be a black hole, depending on how, how big the wolf Ray phase of uh, stellar evolution is. But what we've got here 
is, and this is an Australian discovery, it's fantastic news, uh, and, you know, it utilises um, uh, our new strategic partnership with the European Southern Observatory, because the uh, telescopes of the very large telescope in Chile, uh, belonging to the European Southern Observatory, they've been used for these observations. Um, so, uh, what, what's unusual about about this uh, is that the, there are two Wolf-Rayet stars which are in orbit around each other. So it's a kind of binary Wolf-Rayet. Mm. Uh, um, that's, uh, I think, a bit of a rarity. Um, I, um, it's probable that many Wolf-Rayet stars are in a binary system, to, you know, part of a partnership of two stars orbiting one another, because um, a large percentage of stars are in binaries. Uh, in that regard, our sun's quite unusual because it's a single, it's just a single star. But uh, it, normally when you've got a Wolf-Rayet binary, uh, only one of the stars is a Wolf-Rayet and there's something else with it. Uh, although the problem is the Wolf-Rayet itself is so bright, it's probably hard to see the other one. And so you might not, you know, you might not observe it. Well, I think that was the initial problem. They didn't realise what they had here. And, yes, And uh, I, I think I read one article that suggested this, this should have actually been discovered a long time ago, but um, it was just really hard to see. So that's right. So uh, they had to basically use... Um, uh, use uh, infrared uh, observing to penetrate the dust uh, because this thing's surrounded by a cloud of dust. They're very dusty objects, are uh, Wolf Ray stars. <clears throat> and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a lot of complexity in the details of how this thing works and what it's actually doing. I might just tell you uh, that it's been informally named Apep uh, because uh, that's an Egyptian serpent deity mm -hmm. um, and but basically it's a fairly you know fairly warlike egyptian serpent deity so it's got uh fairly grim overtones uh but uh it's been called that because there is a, a serpent-like um trail of dust uh and indeed gas as well coming from this uh this thing uh apep uh, is uh, is actually emitting almost like a catherine wheel of dust as it rotates. And the speeds at which this wind of dust is being emitted from the star is, uh, is they're very high. They're in the region of three or 400 kilometers per second. These are winds that are, you know, the ones you don't want to get caught out in. No. Uh, I think there is also, uh, I think there is thought to be a third component of this star, uh, this system as well. Uh, I, I, I can't actually remember exactly the details of which bits are which, uh, but I think it is probably a triple star system rather than just a binary. Oh, right. So the density uh, increases as you look uh, in more and more detail. Uh, and rather than try and describe it, because this is a very visual story, uh, especially with these serpent-like jets of, uh, of dust that are, or, or, you know, um, winds of dust that are blowing from this, this yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it is, uh, it, it's not that easy to describe. But the, the issue is these things are thought to be the precursors of something called gamma ray bursts and gamma ray bursts were a puzzle for a long time once again they're a bit like fast radio fast radio bursts fast radio is but, but they are not in fast in radio in the radio spectrum they're in the gamma ray region of the spectrum that's very high energy it's shorter wavelength than x-rays uh, they were discovered actually back in the 1970s by um, satellites which were put into orbit not for astronomy but to monitor 
uh, atmospheric nuclear tests. Uh, that they were, you know, part of the um, the, the, the test ban treaty. Um, these satellites were put into orbit to keep an eye on the whole world, because mm. uh, you can detect from the gamma rays if uh, a, nu a nuclear explosion goes off. Uh, so that's what these things were put into orbit for. Uh, and um, in fact, they, they didn't find any coming from the ground, but they found lots coming from the sky. These very short-lived bursts of gamma radiation, uh, just a few seconds. Uh, they've now been followed up. Um, over a period of a, a long time, we now know a lot more about gamma ray bursts than we did before. Um, and one of the possible origins of these things is, is systems very like the APEP system or APEP system that we're talking about. Uh, this uh, this um, a pair of Wolf Rayet stars and, and its third companion. Um, the, the, perhaps the good news uh, in this story uh, is that um, gamma ray bursts are thought to be brilliantly bright. I mean, they outshine the, almost the whole universe when you see them, but in gamma rays, that is. Yeah. But it's thought that that's because we are along the line of sight of a jet of radiation or, a, or a, what we call a collimated beam of radiation, radiation that's going in one particular direction. Um, and, and so it looks very, very bright because you're right in the beam. It's like a torch beam. Um, but in fact, um, in other directions, the energy released is much less. And uh, the good news about this story is that the, uh, from the studies that have been done, uh, the pole of these stars, uh, which is, or the pole of, you know, the, the north and south pole of uh, either one of them, I think, is is not pointing in our direction. And so, um, if there is a gamma ray burst, and it's the pole from which this is emitted, and that's the current thinking from the theoretical models, which absolutely amaze me, the, the, the way these theoretical astronomers manage to pick out the details of what's happening from the basic physics. Uh, so, the, the emission of gamma rays would almost certainly not be in our direction. What, so would, what would happen if we were to sustain a direct hit from a gamma ray I think, burst? I think it would be pretty um, pretty grim for, for, well, not just humankind, but all life on Earth, because gamma rays are, of course, ionising radiation. It's very dangerous radiation. And if you've got something only 8,000 light years away that's beaming gamma rays at you, I think you're in big trouble. Um, it, and it doesn't do you much good being on the other side of the Earth because, uh, <laughs> you know, you get it basically strips off the atmosphere. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. it, was the atmosphere for a start, uh, and then and it goes downhill from there. Um, but remember, it, but that, being being eight thousand light years away, uh, if it were to, you know, go, um, you know, gamma ray burst tomorrow, supernova, whatever. Yep. We wouldn't have to worry about it for a while, surely. <laughs> Well, it might have done it already. Andrew. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The gamma rays be on the way. <laughs> well, and, it could have happened 7,999 yeah. years, 364 days ago. In which case, we'll see it tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I was going to say was But it's going to miss us anyway, so that's all right. Well, that's the good news because... Um, the ones that we see, you know, the ones that, that are detected by satellites, and there, there are several satellites that, that are specifically to detect gamma ray bursts rather than, you know, looking for nuclear explosions and things. Uh, but the, um, the ones that have been detected are at distances measured in billions of light years, and yet they are still brilliant in the gamma ray spectrum. So imagine that translated into 8,000 light years away, and you get an idea of what yeah. kind of 
ferocity there might be. And I suppose that's what's got people excited because they're saying that the, this collision is imminent and may result in a supernova and that would be a spectacular sight to see, but we just don't know when. And as you said, could have happened already, but because of the space-time situation, we won't see the light of that event until it gets here. Exactly. <laughs> Which could be tomorrow, could be 8,000 years, could be 20,000, could be who knows. We just don't know. That's right. So when people say this thing is very unstable and can go off any time, that's within the next 100,000 years or so, probably. Yeah. Just so. because the you know cosmic events tend to be, they tend to be, um, uh, they, they unfold um, generally rather, you know, rather... Um, rather slowly. So even though it looks as though it's on the brink of going pop, um, the good news is it probably isn't uh, on the brink in, in human terms. It's mm. probably on the brink in astrophysical terms, but not necessarily human terms. Although in human documented human history, there have been a few sightings of events like this, but, um, you know, you've got to be in the right time at the right time, more or less. That, that's right, yeah. Mm. yeah that's yeah. right. Just one, one footnote to this um, uh, is uh, that there's a strong Australian component, uh, as I mentioned, to this story. And in fact, um, the University of Sydney, and in particular Peter Tottil, who's somebody I know, uh, has been uh, very active in this research. I, I listened to a lovely talk by Peter about two weeks ago on a topic that was absolutely completely different from this. But he did seem excited about the fact that there was some big news coming out, and that's what this is. Okay. Well, we'll watch and wait, and maybe we'll get to see it, but probably not. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more 
and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Space nuts. Next up, Fred, we're going to uh, get into the macabre, the supernatural, because astronomers have discovered a ghost galaxy and it's close by. What is a ghost galaxy? <laughs> a, a ghost ga- a galaxy that's back from the dead, probably. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, I don't know whether that describes this object. Uh, it, it rejoices in the name of Antlia II. Uh, Antlia is a southern hemisphere constellation. So once again, this is uh, this observing this has been the province of uh, of southern hemisphere telescopes, including our very own Anglo Australian telescope at Siding Spring Mountain uh, near Coonabarabran. Um, so what we have here is a galaxy that is. Um, basically being dismembered by our Milky Way galaxy. So it's one oh, of the right. one of the retinue of uh, what we call dwarf galaxies, which were formed with the Milky Way, um, uh, probably, you know, 13, 12, 12 billion years ago, probably the, the Milky Way had 100 or so of these dwarf galaxies in orbit around it. But... Um, most of them have been subsumed into the halo of the Milky Way. They've been kind of gobbled up. There are one or two still there. The Large and Small Magellanic Clouds are the most well-known. They're part of the, the our galaxy's retinue, the Milky Way. Um, and there are also smaller ones, a, a lot that were discovered um, sort of in the post-war period um, because they're nowhere near as obvious as the Magellanic Clouds, which are easily visible to the naked eye in areas where there's no light pollution and no moonlight. Um, in times when there's no moonlight. But there are other ones which are, are only recognized by um, the fact that when you do big sky surveys, and this is the sort of thing I was involved with in the 70s and 80s with our UK United Kingdom Schmidt telescope at Siding Spring, because that telescope was a wide angle camera and you could look at the, uh, you know, look at the sky and and basically pick out regions where the numbers of background stars were slightly enhanced, and then you can do follow-up astronomy to check what the uh, sort of chemical composition of those stars at that enhanced level of population were, and several dwarf galaxies were discovered in that way. Um, the most famous is the Sagittarius dwarf, which is, of course, in the constellation of Sagittarius. That means it's pretty well uh, down into the, uh, the the depths of the, the, the galactic center. Mm. Um, so that's the way you do it. You, usually it's by counting stars, basically. Now, we now have a, a, a new tool in this regard, which is um, much more effective than the old photographic uh, imaging that we used to do on the UK Schmidt telescope because it sees fainter objects and it sees the positions of stars much, much more accurately. And that is the Gaia uh, spacecraft. So Gaia is... Uh, 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 what's called an, astro- an astrometric spacecraft. It measures the positions of stars very accurately, and it actually looks at their spectra as well. So, you know, the rainbow spectra, so it can it can deduce their uh, velocities fairly fairly approximately. So, in uh, Gaia data, um, a team of astronomers, uh, actually led by uh, a scientist in Taiwan, uh, but including you know uh, including other scientists too. Uh, they um, they looked at the Gaia data and have discovered this object, Antlia 2, uh, and it's very, very close to the, the disk of the Milky Way. So it's, once again, you, you know, the problem is 
the Milky Way itself, our, the disk of our galaxy, which we see through the thickness as the Milky Way, that's very, very rich in stars. Mm. Um, in fact, for, for astronomers who study stars, it's almost not worth getting into it because there are so many stars there. The trick is to find the empty space between them. Uh, and so to find uh, a dwarf galaxy very close to the plane of the Milky Way, as this one is, is quite an achievement because uh, you've got to dis, dis, or disentangle the stars belonging to the dwarf from the stars belonging to the Milky Way. And you can do that, actually, by looking at things like their colors and, and if you can, their spectra, the, the, the rainbow spectra that gives a fingerprint of the, you know, probably where the things originated. Um, so that uh, was, uh, there was an alert uh, put out um, because of the, the, the Gaia discovery by this group of scientists. And in particular, um, they wanted to, they, they, they were looking for um, some pulsating stars, um, variable stars, which are called R.I. Lyries. And I actually, for 40 years ago, I was an expert in R.L. Lyrae stars because that's oh, right. what I was observing. But the same kind of thing. The thing about R.L. Lyrae stars is that they, 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 they have a fixed um, brightness. Um, I'm, the, the, the brightness varies, but um, once you take that into account, looking at the period of them, in other words, how rapidly they vary, and it's all of the order of one day, um, you, you get a... A, a kind of standard candle measurement from that. It's a technique that's been known for a hundred years. Uh, so RLRs are great because they're, they're, they, they give you a distance, but they also are always found in dwarf galaxies. And so they, the hunt for RLRs was very successful. Uh, and then this object uh, turned up uh, as being a new, newly discovered dwarf galaxy with our allies in it. And it was scientists at the Anglo-Australian Telescope who did the follow-up observation uh, to um, to try and, you know, find the the, the stars that would would um, be, cl be classified as members of this dwarf galaxy. They found more than 100 red giant stars, which are um, part and parcel of the dwarf galaxy. So it's a successful story. And the, the end product is that there is this galaxy, which is a very loose one in the sense that the stars are, uh, they're not all compact. It's a, it's a, you know, it's an aggregation of stars that spreads over a much bigger area of sky than you would expect for a dwarf galaxy. That's almost certainly because it's being pulled apart by uh, the gravity of the Milky Way galaxy. It's about 130,000 light years away, um, and, and it, but it's, it's more or less in the direction of the Milky Way. So you're kind of looking over the top of the Milky Way. Um, another, you know, the, the center of the Milky Way galaxy is about 25,000 light years away. You're looking over the top of it to this dwarf galaxy in the background, and that's the reason why it's never been seen before because it's hidden among the nearest stars of the milky way but it's a great um it's a great discovery there is some um mystery still uh in terms of how big this thing is because it, as i said it's its stars are very dispersed it's very faint uh, the stars are dispersed over a, a wide area and you know even notwithstanding the gravitational forces that it experiences because of our milky way uh it's not clear why it's grown to, to cover such a big area. So that's research that will almost certainly continue to be done. Mm. Uh, and of course, this, as you said, is, is not an abnormal thing, big galaxies sort of sucking in smaller galaxies. And there's probably a few more, maybe even many more that we haven't yet found for similar reasons. 
but we're we're going to, as you and I have discussed in the past, uh, going to see a major merger between two galaxies in the distant future when we uh, collide with Andromeda. So Indeed, yeah, in three and a half billion years or so. Um, unfortunately, Gaia, Gaia, quite so. Gaia will probably have run out of steam by then, so the spacecraft will not be looking in that direction, mm, sadly. Mm. Uh, yes, but um, it's, a, it's a fascinating discovery and one that uh, may, well, certainly already raised more questions than answers, but uh, it's something to, to certainly look into. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here, Fred Watson there. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we'll try and answer a couple of questions. We've been doing them in batches lately, so we're getting nowhere, but we're going to just keep going with them. I've uh, got a, uh, a question here from Nina Mabarez. Uh, where do you think Nina's from with a name like Mabarez? Uh... Well, I would have put it in a Latin American country, probably. Mm. But that's not what the answer is. <laughs> Nina's from Sweden. Uh, <laughs> I'm studying medicine, says Nina, here in Sweden, and was uh, thinking of what field I want to go into in the future. As I have an interest in space, I was thinking, if there uh, is there a way to combine um, doctor and astronomy? Um, for example, for the, a space agency? If so, what would the difference actually be between a doctor working in a hospital versus a space doctor? I like that. Space doctor sounds like a superhero. And also, how does the medical field look in the astronomical field? Good question. Yeah, it is. It's a great question. And there's some you know, interesting answers to it. Um, it just combining medicine and astronomy um, in the you know, in the, perhaps in the most rudimentary way. Uh, I do remember back in the 1970s when um, the United Kingdom, and I worked then in those days for the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, uh, we opened a telescope on the Big Island of Hawaii at an altitude of 4,200 metres. Uh, it was called the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope. It's still going, usually known as UKIRT. But when that uh, programme started, um, we actually had a doctor attached to the unit, to the, uh, the, the um, United Kingdom Infrared Telescope unit, which was the, you know, the, the group of people working in Hawaii. And that's because their daily routine involved this constant decompression as they went up to altitude. Oh, yes, of course. Well, because that's telescope. like, what, 16,000 feet or something? It's 14,000 14, feet, roughly, there you yeah. Go. Yeah. So that's putting you up there in the... Um, in the uh, Stratosphere. <laughs> yeah, it is. Almost, that's right. So um, that, that um, medical practitioner, I think, he, I think he spent a year with us uh, working in Hawaii to study the effects of this change in altitude on people's health. And uh, I do remember, you know, we used to have to go through medical routes, fairly rigorous medical tests before we actually were allowed to go and visit the telescopes in Hawaii, uh, which was a kind of duty of care thing, I guess, by the Royal Observatory. But it was interesting. I do remember um, some uh, going to uh, one of the hospitals in Edinburgh to get myself checked out before my first visit there, which was in 1979. Um, but that's probably not quite the kind of thing that Nina's thinking of. Um, uh, the, the whole area of biology, of course, is now intertwined with astronomy because of astrobiology. And that it brings, uh, it, it, you know, gives you a bringing together of, uh, uh, of some of the various... Um, 
uh, aspects of these different disciplines, astrobiology being not so much the search for life beyond Earth, although that's part of it, but trying to understand how life originated and how, you know, how uh, um, the various uh, geographical or, or atmospheric features that a planet might have might in interact w uh, with life. Um, the so astrobiology is perhaps another area that somebody who's studying medicine might think of going into. Um, but there is, uh, exactly as Nina suggests, there is a discipline of space medicine. Uh, and of course, NASA has a huge number of doctors who are <clears throat> very interested <clears throat> excuse me, very interested in, in the health of astronauts um, at the International Space Station. Mm. Uh, and this is all about uh, looking at how spaceflight affects our health, how it might affect things in the long term with flights to Mars and things of that sort. Um, it, it's, uh, so there is a, definitely a, a space medicine, uh, you know, science. Um, it's probably not that easy to get into because I suspect it's very competitive. But I do know, uh, because I know somebody who's done this, uh, it is possible to go and visit NASA on a, you know, a short space medicine course. I think she um, uh, she went to the the U.S. Uh, it's some months ago now, but was there? I, I don't, I'm not sure for how long. Something like a month uh, for a particularly for a space medicine course. So this is a person who is a doctor, uh, actually with a specialism of her own. She's an anaesthetist, but uh, but she's already a doctor, a practicing uh, medical uh, specialist, but. Uh, because she's interested in space too, she did this this course and found it extremely interesting and very stimulating. And of course, uh, would be very keen to get into the field of space medicine as a practitioner, perhaps sometime down the track. Mm -hmm. So Nina is not, um, you know, not uh, asking a question that's out there completely. It's uh, an entirely realistic possibility. And my advice would be to check out one of these courses and have a look. Absolutely, uh, which yes. Which will be easy to find on the web. Yes. Yeah. And of course, uh, doctors. Uh, would be very busy and on ready alert all the time when uh, there are missions uh, in space and people in space yeah. and uh, we certainly saw that portrayed in the movie Apollo 13 where they uh, they were constantly connected to um, um, biological sensors so their telemetry was being fed back to NASA so that they could keep yeah. an eye on the health of the astronauts um, yeah. and I think one of them did actually get sick on that uh, on that mission uh, and so uh, it is, um, yeah, it is a really great field to pursue. So we wish you well, Nina, and uh, thank you so much for the question and good luck. Uh, so to our next uh, question, hi, Fred and Andrew. Could the Oumuamua trajectory change having something to do with the Yakovsky effect or is it not possible due to the speed or rotation and tra trajectory? This is a question that's come about because of the news of this exo-asteroid that uh, has recently been suggested that might have been a, um, a, um, a, a light sail from another intelligence, aliens, which I'm sad to say, Fred, has been picked up by so many people on social media that want to believe it, and now they're rejecting the people who are saying, well, it's actually garbage. Yeah. Um, people <laughs> people will latch onto anything. Um, so they're now starting to think there are really aliens sending suns, uh, light sails past us. Uh, it's been dubbed a mua mua um, because, um, you know, it's a pickpocket passing by type of thing. Um, but you might want to explain the Yarkovsky effect that Clem is asking about. Indeed. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, this is a really interesting question. Clem's question is, is a very good one. Um, 
because yes, assuming that Oumuamua is, as we believe it is, a cigar or, or baguette-shaped rock uh, spinning with a. Other things have shapes like that, Fred. Uh, yes, I know, I know. As you keep you keep insisting, that's right. Uh, it's spinning on its axis uh, with a, a time of about eight hours or something like that, if I remember rightly. Um, so, so the Yarkovsky effect is to do with uh, the way heat affects a spinning object uh, and it, it actually goes back to the turn of the last century um, it was a in fact not an astronomer it was a civil engineer who, who basically thought of this and his name was uh, Osipovich Yarkovsky so what happens imagine a rock uh, going through space uh, being heated on one side by sunlight the sun's radiation mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, that's fine. What happens is that, uh, you know, uh, one side gets warm and the other's not. And that in itself would cause unequal heating. And it means that, the, uh, that, 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 that there would be infrared photons. Uh, in other words, infra heat, heat is infrared emitted from the side that's getting hot. Uh, and those photons have momentum, and what they do is they provide a slight acceleration to the to the object itself. So it pushes it slightly to one side. But rather counterintuitively, uh, if it's rotating, you would think, oh well, that evens it out. If it's rotating, you know, one side's cold, the other side's warm, and and it's all gradually basted as the thing as the thing rotates. But the Yarkovsky effect can still happen because uh, if it as it rotates, the side that's been in the sun uh, is warmer on uh, as it goes around the back, the, the, around the you know uh, the, the the side away from the sun. Uh, it's warmer than the other side, and so you've got this emission of um, of these uh, uh, infrared photons in a particular direction, and that can still provide an acceleration. So even a rotating object can be. Uh, can actually be uh, subject to the Yarkovsky effect. The accelerations are incredibly small, but they are enough to, um, you know, to change the orbit of something. And in fact, this is, effect has been suggested as being one way that you might divert an asteroid uh, that is on a collision course with Earth. If you've got long enough, uh, you, 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 you might hope that, uh, you know, you perhaps could enhance the Yarkovsky effect by painting it or something like that, uh, so that the the thermal properties change. It's, that kind of thing's been suggested. Hmm. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, the the bottom line here is that the the theory is fairly well established, and we know it does happen. There have been actually tests uh, which um, which have proved that the Yarkovsky effect does happen. Uh, there's a note here, actually, and this is on the Wikipedia page for the Yarkovsky effect, but mentions that an asteroid called Golevka uh, was observed for a long period, 12 years, uh, with the Arecibo radio telescope, so its distance was known very accurately, uh, and it was found to drift by 15 kilometers from its predicted position, uh, which turned out to be um, a measure, a measured 
drift due to the Yarkovsky effect. And and actually, you, you and I have talked about the Osiris uh, Rex mission, which is going to an asteroid called Bennu. Uh, that satellite is also going to check out the effects of the Yarkovsky uh, phenomenon uh, on, a, on an asteroid whilst it's uh, in orbit there. So that's part of, part of what's being studied. Uh, the bottom line, though, is that we really don't know too much about the way, you know, the way it affects your average run-of-the-mill asteroid. Hmm. And in particular, something that's shaped like whatever it is shaped like, <laughs> Oumuamua, um, may, may indeed have Yarkovsky effect uh, being at on it and perhaps causing an acceleration that is shifting its orbit slightly but it, it's just one of many possibilities I think but it is a very interesting question and Clem's kind of on the money to ask that one I'm, yeah. I'm full of admiration for the questions that we get asked on Space Nuts because they tell us that we are speaking to a very erudite audience. Indeed and thank you Clem that's, a, that's been a ripper uh, one more thing before we finish up today, Fred. We got this lovely note from John Townsend, uh, and uh, he just wanted to give us some feedback. On the 21st of October, I introduced my 12-year-old grandson, Joel, to Space Nuts. Tonight, he sent me a text saying he had listened to all 128 episodes. You sure have fired up the, his enthusiasm for all things astronomical. So I'm very pleased to hear that, John. Thank you for telling us. We, we just love hearing stories like that. Um, we've had a few over the last couple of years um, uh, with a, um, a fellow wanting to buy his son a, um, a telescope and yep. uh, a, another lady getting in touch with us about her daughter who's become inspired to get into astronomy. So uh, if we're doing that, then we're really chuffed about it and very pleased. So thanks, thanks for the feedback. We love to hear these stories. And, and good luck to your grandson. Who knows where he may go in years to come. John, and please send him our regards. And Fred, thank you again. Uh, we certainly um, appreciate your effort. It's been a lot of fun, as always. Yeah, great fun, Andrew. And um, hopefully we won't be talking about Oumuamua next time. No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> or light sails or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it'll burn itself out eventually. And uh, oh, something, right. el it, something else will come along and get people going. That seems to be the trend. All right. Always, um, thanks again. Thanks, Fred. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening again. We'll catch you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.